Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. Uh, I am a supported worker out of this church. Uh, so I work in full-time college ministry. There's a ministry called Campus Outreach. I'm at Georgetown University, which is just across the river. Um, and you know, one of the hardest parts about my job is that you can't change people's hearts. You can, you know, I, I feel like I learned this lesson the hard way. I would fling my body at the concrete wall of people's hearts and they wouldn't change. But the, on the converse, one of the most joyful things about ministry is, that, is when God actually changes someone. It's just amazing. You know, uh, this past uh, Sunday, uh, so if you were at church, you might have seen um, about 100 people show up. And they were 100, around 100 college students who showed up for Tim Suh's baptism. So Tim Suh is a guy that I met three years ago, a student at Georgetown. And I, I've had the privilege and honor of discipling him, investing in him, helping him to grow, helping him to follow Jesus. And here's the craziest thing about Tim is uh, when I first met him, he was such a big networker. He would love meeting a lot of people, but it was all self-absorbed. It was, I'm meeting people to get them to like me. Three years later, got by God's grace, now he's bringing 100 people to church, not to know him, but to know Jesus. That's called change, and that's called discipleship, actually. That's, that's what we're trying to do here in this class, is, is learn how do we help one another change and grow and follow Jesus. So here's, a, here's just a season one recap of, uh, of our discipleship course. So we've gone all over the place. This is actually the last class in the series, so you guys are getting the, the cherry on top, um, just dessert right here. Um, what we've gone over is, at, in our first class, we looked at what is discipleship? And here's a very simple definition of discipleship. Discipleship just means to help someone be a disciple or to help someone follow Jesus. A disciple is a follower, and we're specifically talking about discipleship to Jesus. So discipling just means helping one another follow Jesus. And then in, a couple, in other classes, we talked about how the church does that. So discipleship, you know, you might have had some backgrounds where discipleship might just mean like an older guy pouring into a younger guy or an older woman pouring into a younger woman. Well, discipleship can actually just happen by that simple definition in our corporate gathering. So what we're about to do up there uh, for our, when you're listening to the sermon is Jason is going to, Pastor Jason is going to help you try to follow Jesus by preaching. So our corporate gathering as a church is a way we do discipleship. We also talked about in this class how evangelism is part of discipleship. So evangelism is that first step in discipleship. It's helping a non-Christian to try and follow Jesus, helping a non-Christian understand what it means to follow Jesus and helping them to take the leap um, yeah, and then we talked about some practicals. Um, how do we actually start discipling relationships? What are some barriers to discipleship? How do we actually do it? We talked about spiritual disciplines, sin, suffering. So that's the season one recap. And here at our season finale, I want to bring you back 
to a scene in Ratatouille. Any of you guys watched Ratatouille before? So um, there's lately, we just found a mouse in the house, so I, I think I've just been thinking about rats and stuff. But um, so in the movie Ratatouille, the final scene, one of the, uh, towards the end, spoiler alert, is um, there's this food critic throughout this. He looks like Dracula, pale, he's just, you know, brooding, right? He's, and he knows any, any rep, he can crush in restaurant with any review. He goes to this restaurant where, um, where Remy is cooking and they bring out a ratatouille, like a dish of ratatouille, which is a French dish. And this man takes one bite and the, the camera pans into his eyes and you see him as a little kid you know, sniffling, his mom brings him some ratatouille, he eats it, and then you zoom back and it's almost like the color returns to his cheeks. And he looks up and he realizes why he started the whole food business in the first place, why, why he fell in love with food in the first place. See, I think often with something like discipleship, we can get hyper-focused on the mechanisms, on observe, observing what it's like, how do we do it, that sometimes we get lost and we, we forget what was the point. Like, what, what is the point in the first place? What's the aim of this? What, and why, why do we want to do discipleship? So that's, that's what I want to do here today, is by the end of this class, my hope and prayer is that to, is to serve you some ratatouille, basically. I, I want the color to return to what you already know about discipleship. I want to show you that discipleship is a glorious aim and that there's an end of discipleship that, that should actually stir your heart in wonder and, and want you to pump you up. This is kind of like that, that final pep rally speech in the locker room before you go out and start discipling. So, to that end, I'm just going to pray for us before we start, all right? So would you pray with me? Father, yeah, Father, even now, God, we feel our weakness. Uh, we feel our weakness in our affections towards you, God, we feel our weakness in our attention spans. God, we're, yeah, it's so easy to think about what's happening after church or where are the kids or what's happening this week or, man, what am I going to have for lunch? Um, God, we feel our weakness in our bodies. Some of us are just really tired. It's been a long week and the rain isn't really helping. But Father, you say that, that your power is perfected in weakness. And so, Father, Lord, we come to you weak and needy, and we're asking for your help, God. We need your help. God, we can't make disciples without you. God, we can't help anyone to follow Jesus without you. We, in fact, we can't even change people's hearts without you. We can't change our own hearts without you. And so, Father, Lord, would you help us to listen to your word this morning and, and to behold more of Jesus? 
Oh, Father, would you change us? Help us to desire helping one another home to heaven. I pray, Father, I pray that no one would leave this room unchanged this morning. Yeah, so Father, would you be with us? Um, would it be for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So if you've been to several of these classes, you'll know that there has been a verse, a series of verses that we've repeated over and over and over again. Any guesses? It's at the top of your paper. Great Commission. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. So Matthew 28 is, at, is the very last chapter of the Bible. These verses are actually the very last words of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's called the Great Commission because Jesus is at the very end, before he ascends to heaven, is commissioning his disciples. He is, he's commissioning them to go out and to make disciples. So if I could have someone just read uh, verse 18 through 20, it's at the very top of your paper. That'd be great. All right, so before we focus on the, the main part of this verse, the actual commission, which is verse 19 and 20, those are the imperatives, I want you to take a look at me with, at the surrounding verses, the scaffolding. So we have all authority in he on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is talking about power here. He has all this power. And then verse 20 or verse, yeah, at the ver end of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is talking about his presence. So I think these two verses, the scaffolding, is incredibly important for our understanding of the Great Commission. It's like King's Dominion. Have you ever guys, uh, any of you guys been to King's Dominion? It's an amusement park here. Um, so it's a roller coaster, if, it's a roller coaster park, and they're... Um, they're, the tallest roller coaster that they have is a 300-foot monster called the Intimidator. Oof, the Intimidator, right? And um, you go down at 90 miles per hour, and it's this massive thing, and you get up there, and you know the, the, the roller coaster carts are there, and, or the seats, and they have these massive harnesses. Right? They're just like big boys, chonky boys that you put over your, you know, over your shoulders. And what, do you, what, do, what does a big harness tell you about the ride? It's going to be freaking crazy. It's going to be wild, right? So here in Matthew 28, we get some of the most massive harnesses you can find. Jesus' own power, all authority and his presence. The bigger the harness, the crazier the ride. So this is the Great Commission. The call to make disciples is a call to adventure. It's, it's a call to, it's, it's a wild ride where we're going to get to the end of the age and we're going to bring some people with us. Okay, so let's, let's actually look, though, at 
what it actually means to make disciples and what are, what are the aims of discipleship. So you'll find uh, on, on your first point, we're, we're going to be looking at the aims of discipleship. And the first section of the Great Commission is go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, who is Jesus giving this commission to? His disciples. So Christians, right? And notice if a disciple makes a disciple of Jesus, then does the Great Commission also apply to these new disciples? Yes, it does. So notice the genius in Jesus's plan. The Great Commission keeps passing on every time you make a disciple. In one sense, Jesus isn't saying, go therefore and make disciples. He's saying, go therefore and make disciple makers. So the aim of discipleship, just in that first little box you'll see there, is you could say reproduction. Or a more biblical phrase is multiplication. Anybody know where we find the word multiply in the Bible? Beginning pages of scripture. Yeah, multiply. Um, Jesus, uh, or God, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to spread his glory around the earth. So you can see that the commission God gives Adam and Eve is now specified and really fulfilled in Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples multiply, make my glory spread around the earth. So that's one aim of discipleship, reproduction and multiplication. What do you guys think about of all nations, though? What, do you, what, is, what is the implied aim of discipleship there, of all nations? To all the earth, like all peoples. Yeah, all peoples. There's, it's not limited. It's unlimited. It's everyone. Can, no matter who you're, where you come from or what culture you're from, of all nations. So one aim of discipleship, and we talked about this actually in this class, is missions, right? This is why missions exist. We, we want to go out and make disciples of all nations, not just America, but, but of all nations. Okay, what about baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? In order to baptize someone, what's implied? What's that? Salvation. Salvation, right? So you baptize someone who has become a Christian. So another aim of discipleship, you could say, is evangelism, right? Jesus actually says, in order to make disciples, in order to baptize them, you're going to need to share the gospel. And then lastly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What do you guys think is the aim of discipleship there? Obedience. 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 Jesus is saying, you know, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus necessarily means that they obey who they're following, right? So he's saying, teach, teach, these, uh, teach all the nations to observe all that I have commanded you. So what are some things Jesus commands of his disciples? Just from the Gospels, what are, what are just some commands that Jesus makes that you can think of? Love one another, yep. Other thoughts? Yep. 
Yeah, love the Lord your God. Great. Forgive one another. Other thoughts? There's so many of them. <laughs> There's uh, do not be anxious, right? There's don't hold any grudges, right? Forgive one another. There's lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. Render to Caesar what's, what is Caesar's and render to God's what God's. You know, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Worship God in spirit and truth. So there's so many different commands that Jesus makes. But the greatest command, the greatest commandment of Jesus, according to Jesus, is, and it was the first two that actually um, were said here, is to love God and others. To love God and others. So actually, let's, let's take a look at those uh, verses can someone read for us Mark chapter 12, verse 30 through 31? Yeah, so Jesus here is bringing up Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, the Old, Old Testament, and he's basically saying that the greatest commandment is to love God with all that you've got, and the second is to love others. Now, here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians basically says that the entire law, the entire law can be summed up in this one command, love. So in one sense, when Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, you can actually sum up all of that into love. So you could actually say, go therefore make disciples, teaching them to love, to love God, to love others. Now let's look at John chapter 15, verse 9 through 14. So it's just uh, two gospels over. Could someone read that for us? Yeah. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Mm, that's good. So did you guys notice there's two commands in that, in that passage that James just read from John? What's one of the commands? Jesus makes it pretty explicit. Love one another as I have loved you, right? Love one another. And what's another command? This one's a, maybe a little less obvious. Abide in, my love. Abide in my love. 
So do you guys see it? Love God, love others. Abide in my love, love others as I have loved you. Okay, let's keep going. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Someone read that for us. Yeah. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. Yeah, this is kind of where we get the, the title for this course, right? The aim of discipleship. The aim of our charge is love. Now, contextually, what Paul is doing here is he's telling Timothy to basically be wary of false teachers who are teaching false gospels. Notice, though, teaching, right? This, is, this ties back to the Great Commission, right? When we're making disciples, discipling one another, we're teaching one another. We're teaching each other right doctrine. And what is the aim of right doctrine? It's love. The aim of our charge is love. And lastly, from Hebrews 10, 24, I'll just read this. It says, let us consider then how to stir up one another in love and good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love. So that you could say that at the very heart of discipleship is love. It's considering, putting active thought into how you can love God, how you can help others love God, and how you can love others. You know, this, this class is called uh, the aim of discipleship. It's not called aims of discipleship, right? We've looked at all these different aims, but at the very root of it all, the aim, the very end of discipleship, the whole point is love. It's to love Jesus. So, you know, you could turn the page with me. At the very top of your page, you'll find, uh, you'll find basically what I just said. The aim of discipleship is to help others love Jesus and his people. That's the aim. But my question is how, right? Because, you know, it's kind of trite to just be like, oh, of course, the point is to love, right? The point is, you know, the whole world says that, right? So how do we actually do this? Like, what is the functional, the functional aim, you could say? How do you get someone who's, whose heart is prone to wander, that's all of us, to actually love Jesus and to love others. How do we actually do that? Well, take a listen to this. This is a quote from um, Gentle and Lowly. It's a book by Dane Ortland. Um, and, you know, th- it's a quote from this chapter called The Beauty of the Heart of Christ. There's never been a chapter that has so form- like been so formative for my, my faith that shaped my, my view on, on what it means to be a Christian. So here's what Dane says. In our churches today, we often refer to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. But what is it about God's glory that draws us in and causes us to conquer our sins and makes us radiant people? Here's what, here's what he's saying. How do you, what is it in your actual discipling others that actually helps them to follow Jesus? Is it the sheer size of God? 
or a consideration of the immensity of the universe and thus of the creator, a sense of God's transcendent greatness that pulls us toward him? No. Jonathan Edwards would say, it is the loveliness of his heart. It is, he says, a sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the will and draws the hearts of men. A sight of the greatness of God and his attributes may actually overwhelm men. But seeing God's greatness is not our deepest need, but seeing his goodness. Seeing only his greatness, the enmity and opposition of the heart may remain in its full strength and the will remain inflexible. Whereas one glimpse of the moral and spiritual glory of God and supreme amiableness of Jesus Christ shining into the heart overcomes and abolishes this opposition and inclines the soul to Christ, as it were, by an omnipotent power. Here's what Dane is saying. What actually bends the heart is not, is not learning more theology or doing more things or feeling some type of way. It's actually just beholding Jesus, really beholding him. So that you can actually fill in there, that's the blank there, through beholding him together. The aim of discipleship is to help others love Jesus and his people through beholding him together. This 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into one degree of glory to another. So notice, how does transformation happen in that verse? How are we being transformed? By looking at Christ, by beholding his glory. Or this is um, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Notice, he first loved us. You behold his love, you love others. You love God. Or Matthew 28, verse 20. This is the Great Commission, the end of the Great Commission. This struck me this week in a fresh way. Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gives a command. Behold. Look. Pay attention. I am with you always to the end of the age. Beholding God, beholding Jesus is what actually helps you love him more. You know, I was in Thailand this past summer, and we were at this evangelist retreat. I was rooming with two non-Christians, and we basically talked about the gospel until 1 a.m. in the night and for hours. And we were just going back and forth, you know, God, man, Christ response, there really is a God. He really loves you. You're a sinner. He died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again in three days. And if you repent and believe, you can have salvation in his name. So we we're talking about that just going back and forth. They're asking all these questions. And then, you know, it was one of those moments where I feel like the Lord just struck me with, with wisdom, gave me words. And I said, you know, guys, like imagine a painting with me, a painting. And I could tell you all the facts about this painting. I could tell you what's in the foreground, what's in the background, what colors are used, who drew the painting, why they drew it, even. But it's another thing entirely for me to tell you what's beautiful 
about this painting? What, what about it draws you in? What's alluring to you? And sure, the facts matter. The colors and the foreground, all of that matters for the purpose of helping you appreciate the beauty of the painting. That's what beholding means. It doesn't just mean looking at facts. It means beholding what is beautiful, worthy about Jesus. Beholding the love of Jesus, beholding more of who he is, is what actually causes us to, and I'm going to give you a bunch of verbs here, to cherish him more, to treasure him more, to adore him more, to fear him more, to revere him more, to obey him more, to love him more, to, adore, to, to long for him more, to want to follow him more. That's the aim. If we're not doing beholding Jesus in our discipleship, I would actually say, hot take but not really, there's no point. There's no point in your discipling others if you're not beholding Jesus. Because what does discipleship even mean, right? It means to follow Jesus. So if you're not beholding him, then what's the point? So you'll look here in point A, beholding God in various situation, discipling situations. You'll see this, this little paradigm I've made, head, hands, heart. And I think in our discipling relationships, I think we often misprioritize other things over beholding Jesus. I think we misprioritize the head, so just learning facts, learning just knowledge, theology, reading books, right? Over actually beholding Jesus. Sometimes we misprioritize the hands, just behavior modification, right? I'm just going to be a better person. I'm going to wake up every morning. You know, I'm going to do, do better. I'm going to, I need to progress. I just need to do more stuff. I need to share the gospel more. I need to do this. I need to whatever. And, the, and also the heart. I think we misprioritize the heart. Sometimes we, we, just, we feel like growing, following Jesus is just feeling emotions. It's just having experiences. So I, here's what I want us to do. Just let's like really get down and gritty with this. Okay. Let's really start applying this. I'm going to give you three different situations around these. And then we're going to talk about the dangers of not beholding God, beholding Jesus in those situations how we can actually turn that situation to behold Jesus and what the impact might be. So, for, ex for example, with the head, let's take the sermon from two weeks ago. So remember, sermons, form of discipling, right? You're helping someone follow Jesus because Garrett is literally teaching you things about him. Here's how you follow Jesus, right? So two sermons ago, the sermon was on, does anybody remember? Sincerity, right? Plans, right? Don't, don't go back on your word. Don't vacillate, right? Really try to make plans and try to be faithful to them, right? Stick to your word. What would the danger of that, of not beholding Jesus be? So let's say you learn all that and you walked away and you didn't behold Jesus in there. What would the danger be? Love to hear some thoughts. Uh, just the head. Just the head. 
Let's stick with just the head, yeah. I would remember all the verses he used to be able to make the same argument to somebody else about sincerity, but then nothing would happen. Yeah. Other thoughts? What other dangers? Look backwards and just think about all the times I have not been sincere and really feel bad about that or just sort of try to buck up in the future but not really go beyond. Yeah, either maybe hyper guilt or just, you know, okay, I got to pick myself up by the bootstraps. What, what are some other dangers? How about this? Oh, yeah, Josh. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. So you could keep, you could retroactively look back, try to rationalize all these things. I think also, how about just pride? You know, the Bible literally says knowledge puffs up. So you could, in a way, learn all these facts about, oh, this is what it means to make good plans and all this kind of stuff. If you're not beholding Jesus, you forget the point. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He's the one who, all, he makes a, who makes plans and never falls back on them. He's the foundation, not your own character, not your own effort, not your own knowledge. He's the one we should look to. And because he does it, because he makes plans, promises to us that he always keeps, we should also try to make promises that we, we can keep, right? You see how that actually changes beholding Jesus? So, okay, so let's just take that same example. In your, let's say, let's, in, your, in your fellowship group, you're doing a sermon review. How would you change the conversation from just talking about the mechanics of making plans to beholding Jesus? What's something you could say? Or ask. I think, I mean, I don't know exactly how I'd ask it or say it, but thinking about and reading Mark and how we see how Jesus has made plans and how he is, how he is sincere in his plans, so looking to see, like, what does he do in his ministry and how can that Yeah, yeah, that's so good. So just bringing up, just even from Jesus' own ministry in your fellowship group, you could just talk about that, right? Hey, I, he's, he has never been unfaithful to me. And as much as I'm unfaithful, like that makes me want to be more like him. Because he's loved me in that way. I want to love others like that. I want to love him like that. Okay, so let's, let's move on to hands. Okay, so let's say, for the situation I came up with for hands, let's say you're in a small group, maybe a men's group, a women's group, small group, it's, at the, it's in night, and we're confessing sins, okay? Confessing sins to one another. And what's the danger of not beholding Jesus while you're confessing sins to one another? Feeling hopeless, despair. What what can I do? I've just I'm just a sinner. 
There's no hope. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Just putting on a mask and maybe even maybe even you are grieved, but you're just grieved because of the worldly consequences and not because you've sinned against God. Right? Yeah. Only just, just subtract stuff. Yeah. And like no prayer, no consideration of how it grieves the Lord. Just just clean it up together. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's so good. This you know, this is kind of a it's kind of a spicy statement. Um but I've once heard that like what good is it if someone stops looking up inappropriate things on the internet? And Satan just gains another prideful man. It's a little, it's a little, I don't think that's, I think you could probably nuance that a lot more. But the point is, simple behavior modification, just trading one idol for another, doesn't actually help anyone. It's, it's, it's not helping you become more, it's not helping you love Jesus more, right? So that's the danger, right, of just trying to fight sin without beholding Jesus. Now, what could you actually do? What, you could, what could you say or ask in this situation, in a small group, that would change, change the conversation to beholding Jesus while confessing sin? Why is Jesus worthy of being Yeah. Kind of Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. Other thoughts? Maybe take it down to the emotional level. It's like the, the head is at a certain plane and the heart is at a different level. And when it really begins to flow in, is there grief? Is there struggle? Is there something that flows out from this? Or is it just a figuring out a solution? Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. yeah on a practical level, you could ask, what practices in your life actually help you enjoy the Lord more hmm. and treasure Him more than sin? Because the, our desire for Christ isn't just something that kind of leaves up out of nowhere. Yeah. The Lord does give it to us, but He often uses so many means to grow us to love Him more. And so you acknowledge what helps you do that, not as a way of being as a way of, I'm going to give myself to some discipline, trusting that the Lord will help me desire Him more. Yeah. Like, ask, what, what can we do practically to, to replace the love of sin with the love of God? Hmm. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah, you know, two things I thought of were, I use two phrases very often in this. Um, one phrase I'll say often when a guy is confessing sin to me, so I'll say, this is why he died. 
this is, this is why Jesus died for you. This is why we had to, we drove nails through human, like, it's just gruesome thinking about the like what we did to Jesus. This is why he bore all the wrath for you. That, that puts your heart in the right place. Another phrase I'll usually say is also, brother, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus for you. You're free. You're free. You're free to not sin, actually. You're free to not sin. He did that. He did that for you. He, he loves you enough to, to wipe all your sins away. He's, he doesn't even, the Bible says he remembers our sins no more. What? How, how could an omniscient God, how could omniscient Jesus ever forget your sins? And yet he does. It's, it's exaggeration to say he's, as far as the east is from the west, he is so far removed, your sin, from you. You see how beholding Jesus completely rewires our sin conversations, our confessions. It helps us, makes us, like Dane said, be radiant and want to fight sin, conquer it. All right, the last situation, heart. The situation I thought for this is a one-on-one -on -one conversation and someone is just lamenting before you. They're going through a really hard time. It's been a really, they're going through some suffering. What's the danger of not beholding Jesus in that kind of situation? Yeah. So then it just becomes emotion that Satan can push in many directions through guilt or any other means. Mm -hmm. Just despair. Yep. That's so good. We're always beholding something. Yeah. We miss out on just meditating on God's love and how He works through those things and actually uses them and actually uh, intends to do good to us uh, even through them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a way you could change, turn the situation, right? You know, it's so interesting. I've this is probably the one that I've fallen into a lot. A lot of students will come to me and they're just like, oh my gosh, I'm going through so much suffering. I have this exam. You know, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm sitting there listening. And we'll talk about, I'll emotionally empathize with them, listen to them. And sometimes I forget to bring up Jesus. And here's what happens. Either they fall into despair like, I can't do anything about this. Or they'll be won over to not Jesus, but to me. They'll be attached to me. They'll fall in love with me and my listening and become codependent. And, and now they're looking to Nick Naw to be their savior and listener and counselor and father, not God the Father, God the Savior, and God the Counselor. 
there's a real danger in the heart for us to not behold Jesus, but to behold other things, especially in suffering. So what Chris said, like, we want to turn those situations to beholding Jesus. Do you guys see how... I wonder, you know, maybe something good for you, you all to do today is in your, in your lunches or with your family, maybe with your spouse, talk about where you're prone to make discipleship go. Where, are you prone more towards the head, just learning all these facts about God, but never, never really beholding him, seeing the beauty of him? What is it about justification that so draws you in? Not just the mechanics. But what is it about propitiation that draws you in? Or, or maybe you're more drawn towards the hands. I just got to do things, right? I just got to do things for God. But what is it about Jesus that makes you want to do those things? Or maybe it's the heart. Maybe you're just looking for a spiritual high or you've just been feeling like a plateau. But what is it about Jesus that actually means that it's okay to not feel all the time for him? Because he's, he is your righteousness. So the head, hands, heart, we need to be beholding Jesus. And here's the thing. Beholding God is not just a situation. We talked about situations. It's a lifestyle. You can't really behold Jesus if it's not weaved into the very fabric of your life. I'm talking about your daily bread. So that's, that's the first thing. Drink deeply of Jesus. Drink deeply of Jesus. What I mean by that is we need to share and intake the daily bread of life, Jesus himself, in order for when these, when these discipling situations come up, whether that's in your fellowship group or right after church or in the dark of the night confessing sin or on a one-on-one -on -one lunch where someone's crying, lamenting over suffering we need to be have have drank deeply in jesus in order to help people behold jesus so here's just a couple practical ways i thought of for uh how i drink deeply of jesus is one read the gospels i think it's not a command but i think every christian should probably read at least one a little bit of the gospels a day like one part of the gospels a day it just helps us, it helps you key in on the person of Jesus. It's not a, not a commandment, so don't, I'm not trying to bind anyone's consciences here, but uh, there are seasons for not reading the Gospels too, I think, but I think it's just generally helpful. We want to see Jesus, okay? And we also want to see Jesus in all the Bible. So it's not just the Gospels. I think wherever you are in the Bible, you want to, you want to see Jesus in them. How do you see Jesus in the law? How do you see Jesus in the, in the prophets? How do you see Jesus in the Psalms? So many times. If you need help with that, that's what Del Rey is here for. Right? We want to help you see Jesus. And we also, I think one more application is we want to, drinking deeply of Jesus doesn't just mean studying the Bible, Bible study. It means meditating. You know, the Hebrew word for meditating, meditate, is chew. You think about like a cow, you know, just moving their jaw all day, chewing on some, some grass, you know. 
that's what we're meant to do with the Word of God. It's not, oh, here are all these logical sequences. Those help, okay? Looking at logic, grammar, what the text is saying. But we want to be meditating on what is the wondrous thing to behold here. So meditate on God's Word. Look for Jesus in them. Think over and over again. Here's one thing I've been meditating on. You know, uh, the Mary, Mary goes and she anoints Jesus with oil. And Jesus says, she has done a very beautiful thing for me. So here's what I've been meditating on. Jesus nowhere else calls any other action beautiful that I could find. So what is it about her act that was so beautiful to him? To the point that he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, they will know about her. He doesn't say that about anyone. He doesn't say that about, and that's not to say, you know, the gospels are there for us to know, right? But I've just been meditating on like our, our act. Jesus seems to value our extravagant acts of love. He finds it beautiful. You want to know what God finds beautiful? The creator, he made sunsets. He made, you know, you could say he finds nothing really that beautiful because he made it all. But he finds humble sinners who go to his feet and worship him, love him as beautiful. That's just something I've been reflecting on. So just take that. Make, maybe take one phrase from your, from your reading a day, a verse or a word. And just meditate on it. Drink deeply of Jesus. And the second application that I have here, as before beholding God as a lifestyle, is to invite Jesus-oriented, hyphen, invite Jesus-oriented meditation and conversation. Jesus-oriented meditation and conversation. Invite that in. Here's what I mean by that. I think in our circles, maybe even at our church, there is this tendency to talk about the things of God absent from a sense of wonder and worship. I think we can get stuck talking about eschatology. If you don't know what that means, it's just end time theology. Or maybe even talking about ecclesiology, church governance, and miss out on the beauty of where Jesus is in all of that. How it's his church. And you know what? For eschatology, he's coming back to grab us, to bring us home. What if we could make our conversations more about adoring the heart of Jesus? You know those kinds of people where you just spend time with them and for however short, they just warm your affections for Jesus. Like just, man, they make you love him. You know, they make you want, they make you, they make, remind you like why this is worth it. Why life is thorny, but why he built, bore the crown of thorns for you. What if we could become a church of people like that? I mean, we would take the world by storm. So let's, let's try to be a people who invite Jesus-oriented meditation and conversation. Let's talk about him. Let's meditate on him. Let's, let's not make it weird when someone brings up, you know, hey, what's been lovely about Jesus to you today? You know, that might sound a little, you're like, 
uh, I don't know, I was just trying to talk. I'm not saying like we should never talk about like football or, you know, what's on the news or I'm just saying let's weave this in into our daily rhythms. Make it don't be that person who makes it awkward when someone brings it brings up God. You know, we should invite that. We should be like, hey, tell me more about that. Tell me more about what you've been what you've been meditating on. What has the Lord been not just teaching you? How has the Lord been shaping you in what he's been teaching you? We should invite Jesus-oriented meditation and conversation. I want to end with a verse from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. I would love for you guys to all see this in your own Bibles, if, if you can. And this will kind of wrap up our discipleship course here. 1 Thessalonians 2. By the way, while you're turning there, uh, 1 Thessalonians is my go-to book for showing someone how to disciple others. It's just so good. Um, right before the verse that we're about to read in chapter 2, Paul talks about how he brings up parent, parenting imagery. I love this. He says, we not only, like a mother. Paul calls himself like a mother, you know? Just think about that. He's the Apostle Paul. He calls himself like a mother. We share, we, we share not only the gospel with you, but our very selves. Think about a mother just literally giving her life, her, her affection to a baby. And then he also calls into mind, like a father, we exhorted you. A father who is trying to exhort you to raise you up to follow Jesus. And then at the very end, there's this, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Friends, that sounds blasphemous a little bit, right? Here's what he's saying. It's not, by the way. It's not blasphemous. But what Paul is saying is when Jesus comes back, flaming hair, riding on the chariots, being, you know, everything's wiped out. He comes back to judge the earth, fire, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And when you stand before him, the Jesus you've been waiting for all your life, what you're going to be boasting about, what you're going to say, here's my crown, Jesus. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say it's you, Jesus, or the cross. He says, it's you. You, the people that I have discipled, helped follow Jesus. The church. Huh. Now, is Paul glorifying people over God? Not at all. He's saying that God has worked so mightily in his people. He loves, Paul loves God's people so dearly the people that he's helped father and mother in the faith, the people he's helped raise to follow Jesus and to love him, that he says, I'm going to be boasting about you. We actually just read this in 2 Corinthians 2. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That's 
the end of discipleship, guys. One day, all the people that you have helped to love Jesus by beholding him, you're going to behold him together and you're going to say to God, to his face, here is my joy, these people that I brought with me. We, we made it. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for helping us here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll close out here. Father, oh, Father, Lord, I pray that, I pray that these words would not land on deaf ears. Please, God. God, we don't want more mechanical disciples. We don't want more machines. We don't want more knowledge books, history annals. God, we don't want just more feely people who feel things but, but are not grounded in Jesus. God, we, we want to behold him. God, we want to behold you. Would you help us? God, would you, would you actually... I know this discipleship class is ending, Father. We know that. But we're praying that, that discipleship would continue far past when this hour ends. Oh, Father, help us to help each other, love, you, love Jesus more, to love others, and to behold him together. God, that's the point. And God, we long for that day when Jesus will return and we'll be able to boast before you. Man, God, here's all your people that you brought home. And you use feeble servants like us. What a wonder that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.